I want to minister today, he will come again. The, the line in the creed is he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Some versions, depending on the language, will say he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Quick being an old English word for alive. Same way that sometimes we translated the old English for dead as sleep in the, in the King James. We have quick and sleep or awake and asleep. The point of it is that for 2,000 years, our position has been that Jesus returns and that he returns to take care of both that which is alive and to take care of that which is dead. So I don't want to be ambiguous today. This is the kind of message that's very difficult to teach on one Sunday morning because in, at its heartbeat, it's eschatological. Eschatology is study of end times or last days events. You can't talk about Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead without talking eschatology. That's it in a nutshell, is that he's coming back. I don't want to be too in-depth because we won't get anything done. There's a lot of scriptures to cover. But I don't want to be coy. I don't want to dance around this very important line. So let me start with a couple of statements that I think I need to make up front, even before we get into the text. Because many of you have followed this ministry for a long time. The garden's a very young church, but it's got deep roots in that we've been together a long time. So you've heard my thoughts on about every subject, I guess, that could be broached. Most of you have. But there are times when we need to step into arenas that aren't as easy to step into because there's so much depth and so much baggage. So a few statements up front. I maintain the orthodox position that Jesus will come again. I maintain that. I do not maintain the more modern understanding that is often surrounded by the eschatological statement Jesus is coming again. I don't maintain some of the modern interpretations, some of which are that we will be raptured out or that we will leave the earth. I don't maintain this. I don't maintain that God has a separate covenant for the people of Israel than he does for the people of Christ. And that God needs to get the people of Christ called the church out of the way so that he can govern the people of Israel by a separate covenant. I don't maintain that. That's a dispensationalist eschatology. The idea that God functions under two different ways. I don't maintain that all of the eschatological scriptures in the New Testament are out in our future. That just because they're prophetic, I don't maintain that they're prophetic for you. In other words, I believe there are many prophetic verses in the New Testament that are in your past, but they were in their future. Those things need to be set up front because I want to make sure that you understand that I very much believe Jesus is coming back. I just don't very much believe it the way a lot of people believe it. And I want to try to show you why today in the scriptures. But at the end of the day, whether we're in agreement on all of those things, they're ancillary as far as I'm concerned. If you, if you believe that there's going to be a, a rapture that will take the church out, that God will deal with the earth through a different covenant than he's dealing with the one with the church, and that all of the scriptures in the New Testament are out in your future. 
we'll still be okay with each other. I'll still be okay with you. You may not be okay with me, but I'll be okay with you. I get along with a lot of people that believe all of those things because we believe in Christ, that he died for our sins, that he resurrected from the dead, and we actually land on this commonality. Jesus is coming again. All the other stuff, maybe we don't land on the same footing, but we land on Jesus is coming again. Here's the thing, neither, regardless of whether you believe all of those things or you believe something I might say, none of us have been to the future. None of us have seen Jesus coming again. So all we really have is what we see in the text and what we understand has happened in the historical past that can be traced. And we can rest in this assurance that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that the Jesus that comes again must look like the Jesus that left. And so if the Jesus you have coming back doesn't act like the Jesus that left, that ought to be a red flag to your theology. So if your theology has a different Jesus arriving than the one that went away, then we probably will have some disagreements as to what it will look like when Jesus comes back. Because I maintain a Jesus that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. He's the same Jesus that departed is the same Jesus that arrives. So let me, I gave you a few things I don't adhere to. Let me give you a few things I do adhere to. And again, if we don't adhere to the same things, okay. We believe Jesus is coming again. But I adhere to apokatastasis, a Greek word I've preached to you before. In fact, many times to you before that Peter uses when he says that the time is coming that will bring Christ and the restoration of all things. Restoration of all things is from the Greek word apokatastasis. And it is literally the moment when Jesus restores everything back to the Father. I believe that day is coming. This is why I anticipate Jesus is coming. Because we need an apocatastasis. We need a complete renewal of all things. I anticipate Jesus is coming because I believe he will put all enemies under his feet. A process that is happening as the kingdom spreads over the earth. And that all the enemies are being gathered under Christ's feet because Christ has finished the work and sat down. I like to look at it like all of the darkness is being put under as his footstool. That Jesus' feet are being raised over the centuries as all of the darkness comes beneath Jesus. And I believe that death will be no more. Now we may have interpretations that fall similar, and we may have interpretations that fall completely opposite, because some people spiritualize all of those things and say apocatastasis has already happened. We just haven't seen it in its fulfillment yet. All the enemies are already under his feet. We just aren't living it out. And Paul didn't mean actually die, and Paul meant spiritually dying. And so those are legit arguments. I'm not up here to make that argument. I hope you can see how it's tough to do all of this in a Sunday morning anyway. So I'm not going to argue out all of those, whether they're literal or whether they're spiritual. But they are things that I believe accompany Jesus and his return. That they are part of his return. Whether they're fulfilled at one time or they're fulfilled over time, I leave that to Jesus. I leave that to the Holy Spirit, but I anticipate Jesus. So I've given you some things I won't adhere to. I've given you some things I believe this is the reason why he's coming back. So let me then start with scripture by saying, I'll meet you in Matthew 24. And I want to say this up front. I want to take Jesus at his word. Okay. 
And what I mean by that is I want to listen to Jesus. What did Jesus say about his coming? That's a great place to start. So we want to start with what Jesus said about his coming. And we want to see what the New Testament says about his coming. And I want to start in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I want to reread the three questions that are asked by the disciples. I want to reread them carefully. When will this be? Let's stop there. What will what be? Well, the preceding chapter, Jesus told the disciples that the temple was going to be left desolate. In other words, the Holy Spirit's going to leave the temple and it's going to come down. Not one stone's going to be left unturned. And the disciples say, when? So question number one, when is that temple coming down? When is the Spirit going to depart from the temple? Straightforward question. Question number two, what will the sign of your coming? Question number three, what will be the end of the age? Let's deal with number two. What will be the sign of your coming? Not when are you coming back? What will be the sign of your coming? Not when are you coming back? I know I'd said it twice. I didn't forget that I said it the first time. I said it twice because I want you to realize that a lot of what we are saying is us adding into the text what isn't there. So the disciples say, when are you showing up? Now that seems like a silly question to us because he's sitting right there. What do you mean when are you coming? So that's why, because we didn't understand what they were asking, we think they're saying, when are you coming back? But what they're actually asking is, when are you coming out? When's your coming out party? As king. We've been following you for three years. When are you going to show up? When are you going to do what we thought you were going to do? When are you going to bring the kingdom? When are, here's what they really want to ask. I, we know this because we, how, how Peter acts with that sword business. Here's what they're really asking. When are we killing Caesar? That's what we signed up for. This is a revolution, baby. When is this going to happen? And then they top it off with a third question. What's the end of the age? Now, if your Bible says, what's the end of the world? I want to let you know that you've been misled by translation. Because the end of the world would be the Greek word, what's the end of the cosmos? But they don't say what's the end of the cosmos. They say, what's the end of the eon? What's the end of the age? They're not asking when's the world coming to an end. They're asking when's the age coming to an end? What age? The age of the temple. That's what got this whole conversation started. This temple's coming down. The Holy Spirit's going to leave it. Hey, Jesus, when's that going to happen? Oh, and by the way, when are you going to show up? And what's the end of this whole age? And Matthew chapter 24 is Jesus answering that question. Don't ever forget that when you read Matthew 24. The reason I'm bringing this up is a lot of eschatology scriptures that are getting bandied about, about Jesus is coming back, are quotes from Matthew 24. And Jesus is answering three direct questions. When's this going to happen? When are you going to show up? And when's this whole thing coming to an end? This whole thing, not the earth. When's this whole thing? They look around. When's this coming to an end? And Jesus answers it throughout Matthew chapter 24. And one of the things he says is in verse 30. There's no way we have time to preach Matthew 24. 
But I do want to show you a couple. In verse 30, he says, There'll be a sign of the Son of Man that will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. A scripture that's caused many people to believe that Jesus will come back riding on a cloud and everybody in the world will see him when he comes down to earth and then takes the church out. But Jesus is quoting prophetic imagery from the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, the Bible says that the Son of Man shall ride on the clouds and stand in front of the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days will hand unto him a kingdom that shall have no end. And Jesus, by calling himself the Son of Man riding the clouds, is putting himself in as the prophetic figure of the book of Daniel, saying that I am going to be given the entirety of the kingdom from my Father, and I'm going to gather people unto myself when I do that. Jesus uses the phrase gather, and later in the chapter he uses the phrase taken. Gather is what happens when Jesus stands outside of Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how often that I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. Because gathering is what God does to people that he loves. You know what we just did this week in Thanksgiving? We gathered together. People came in and gathered together. No one was taken this weekend. Gathers good, taken's bad. Matthew 24 goes on to say two people will be working in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two will be grinding at the meal. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two people will be sleeping in the same bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. You've probably heard that as a rapture verse. God doesn't take, God gathers. So in Matthew 24, Jesus is warning people, the enemy is going to come in and destroy this city of Jerusalem. It's going to be compassed about with armies. Get out of the city. He says, flee to the mountains of Judea when this happens because they will kill with impunity. What Jesus is saying is some are going to be taken. Some are going to die. A few are going to make it. Don't look at God as a taker. Look at God as a gatherer. So when you see taken, that's negative. When you see gather, that's positive. Jesus gathers his elect. Rome takes what it wants. You know who else takes? The thief comes not but for to steal kill, destroy. That's a taker, not a gatherer. Gathering's a harvest term. Taking is a thief term. You won't be taken. We're gathered into Christ. I think the gathering is still happening. He's still gathering into himself. But the literal events of Matthew 24, you say, when are those supposed to happen? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 34. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away till all these things have taken place. So in Matthew 24, 34, Jesus says this generation, which generation? The generation standing in front of him, the one that asked the three questions. When's this going to happen? What's your coming? When's the end of the age? Jesus goes, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. So I will say this. Let's take Jesus at his word. A lot of what you're putting in your future is in your past. This regards the fall of the temple. It came down in August of AD 70. The New Testament is written mostly inside of that window, prophetically talking about an event that would end the age. It's why Paul said, don't get married. The time is short. We upon whom the end of the age has come. If you don't realize Paul's talking about the fall of the temple and the mosaic economy, you might take him serious and believe no one should be getting married. They took him serious because they didn't know when the end of that age was going to happen. 
This is why context is important for Christians when they read their Bible and not to wildly and blindly throw out any verse that you think you can throw out on a prophetic timeline to try and help you with the process. So Jesus visited Jerusalem in what we would call a judgment in AD 70. His visitation, however, was a deliverance for his people. He gathered his people, those who moved outside of the walls. And what happened is the old system, the old mosaic economy came down. Hebrews chapter 8 ends with the phrase, that which is obsolete is ready to vanish away. In other words, that which has already had its back broken is on its way out. What was that? Old covenant mentality. And so you have a, a New Testament being written like this. An old, test, an old covenant economy. Here's Jesus dying on the cross. An old covenant that people are holding on to. And the New Testament writers are writing you into a new covenant. And they're overlapping because that temple's still standing. And they keep prophesying it's coming down though. When it comes down, there's nothing to go back to. Don't go back to that old temple. And we're living on the other side of that. And that was called Christ riding on the clouds appearing before the Ancient of Days. That was us being ushered into the kingdom of God. So I say he came. He came just like he said he would. But that doesn't mean he won't come again. Why? Because in the New Testament, he shows up more than once. Tell Paul that Jesus won't come again. Paul's walking down the road as Saul of Tarsus, ready to persecute some Christians, and he sees Jesus standing in the middle of the road, and he knows him immediately, and he's never even met him. Lord, what, what's going on? And Jesus says to him, it's really hard for you to keep kicking the thorns, isn't it? You're persecuting me. You think you're persecuting my church, but when you persecute my church, you're actually persecuting me. And Paul goes blind to his old self so that he can have his eyes restored to his new self. Tell Paul Jesus wasn't going to make appearances. And so there has been a steady coming of Christ in Revelation in your heart ever since. But there will be a consummation, a coming for all time in our future. And how do we know? Well, let's, let's, let's stop with some stuff, first of all. Let's stop with timelining it. I think one of the disasters that happened in the 20th century to eschatology was timelines charts <laughs> big old charts this happened here this happened here that's fine that's well and good that's history we need history history lets us use the phrase we've been down this road before if we don't have history we can never say we've been down this road before we need that because if you have ever went down a road before it tells you how to go down the next road maybe okay we need history history charts are great this happened and this happened and this happened. future charts are trouble because future charts go, this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. And I was raised on eschatology that had future charts. And so I just bought everything the future chart said was going to happen was exactly like the future chart said it was going to happen. I think we need to get rid of timelines. We serve a God who stands outside of time, who functions inside of our time. And I don't have any idea how he consummates time with eternity blows my mind how God consummates time and eternity, two separate realms, how in the end he brings those together. It's beyond my pay grade, man. I don't think you can put that on a timeline. I don't know how he does it. I'm not even sure why he does it, but he's God and I'm okay with an apocatastasis.
a total restoration of all things. I'm okay with it being in the hands of the same Jesus that left. Because that Jesus has risen from the dead. That Jesus has conquered death. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I'm okay with that being in his hands. So let's get rid of timelines. And let's get rid of reading the book of Revelation as a book of literal events anticipating out in our future. The book of Revelation tells you in the first three verses that it's a book of signs about Jesus. So start to read it as a book of signs, not literal events, and start to read it as an unveiling of Christ across time. Start to read it as a warning to Israel about falling in love with empire. Make a difference between a slain lamb and a rising beast. And if you'll take Revelation serious, then you'll, make, you'll parse that difference today. Not because it's prophesying of today's president or tomorrow's king, but because it's warning Israel of falling in love with empire. The empire that day was Rome. It's even, it even identifies the Caesar of that day, 666. 666 was the Greek numerical name of Caesar Nero. It even identifies him inside the book to go watch out for empire. Don't fall in love with it. Keep your loyalty to the slain lamb. What would it say to the American church? What does the book of Revelation say to the American church? Parse the difference between the slain lamb and the beast. Be careful. It's easy to follow the beast and not realize you're doing it. Your loyalty is to the slain lamb. The beast comes in many forms and he'll rise up out of the sea. But follow the slain lamb. In the end, he's the victor by being the victim. Follow him into his cross so that you can follow him into his victory. That's a good warning for the church. Be careful who you're loyal to. Right? Choose your loyalties wisely. I didn't say choose your politicians wisely. I said choose your loyalty. This has nothing to do with po- Choose your loyalties wisely. Nobody else gets your allegiance but Jesus. He's the slain lamb, dripping in his own blood, riding the horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. Or you can follow those that have swords in their hands. When you read Revelation seriously, It unveils Jesus in a way that goes, wow, I've got to pay attention to Jesus, not timelines. Did I say that right? If you'll read Revelation responsibly, you'll read a book that unveils Jesus to his church and you'll get away from timelines because you'll start to see Jesus. It doesn't say this is a book about what's going to happen on the timeline. This is a signification of things to come, but an unveiling of Jesus inside of those things. And let's realize who is coming back. All right? Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's get into some scripture. I don't want to wear you out with scripture, but I am going to hit you with a few here, okay? We'll, we'll go slowly. I want to make sure you're able to turn to them because I want you to see them. You know me. I'm a big fan of you seeing scripture, not just listening to it. It's why we listen to scripture here every week, but it's why I have you guys be the readers. Because I like for you to engage the scripture. I like for you to find it. Hebrews chapter 12. What we're going to do is I'm going to take you to the mountain you're on right now. A lot of times this mountain gets preached in contrast to Sinai. It should. Because the author of Hebrews says there's two mountains. There's Sinai and there's Zion. Sinai is the law. Zion is the new covenant. Okay. You've been on one, he says to the Hebrew people. You're on another one now. But I want to show you who's on that mountain with you in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. 
You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Look at that. I didn't say you're in heaven right now. I said you're on a mountain right now. Everybody on the mountain's enrolled in heaven. See that? It's the difference. This isn't the mountain you're going to. This is the mountain you're on. Angels, assembly of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven. Look who else is on the mountain. God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So let's start with this. You are currently on the mountain with God the judge and Jesus the mediator. And God the judge and Jesus the mediator are one. Remember that? Jesus said, I and my father are one. What he says, I say. What he does, I do. He doesn't say it, I don't say it. He doesn't do it, I don't do it. Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever, means that whatever God is, Jesus is. God the judge, Jesus the judge, Jesus must judge. Jesus said, if I judge, I judge a righteous judgment. And then Jesus said, for this purpose, I came into the world to be judged, to take judgment into me, which tells me I'm in good hands. If I'm on my mountain with the judge, I'm on the right mountain. I'm on the mountain with the man who's already met my judgment. I'm on the mountain with the mediator of a new covenant. I'm not on my way to the mountain. I'm emphasizing this for a purpose. I'm not on my way there. I'm there. I'm on the right mountain with the judge who's already judged a righteous judgment, who according to 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself by not counting their transgressions against them. Which means I'm on the mountain with God the judge, not God the bookkeeper. You knew I was going to circle back to that. That's one of my favorite themes. You don't serve a bookkeeper God. Oh, I know. Revelation has books. I know. I, like, I love it when people throw that curveball. Revelation 20 says the books will be open. It also says there's another book, the book of life. So you don't have to worry about the books. You got the book of life. <laughs> you got life. If you're in Christ, you're in life. Life is in you. And so we got God the judge and we got Jesus the mediator of a better covenant. Speaks better things than the blood of Abel because the blood of Abel just speaks vengeance and anger. But the blood of Jesus speaks avenged. And that's the mountain I'm on. And so I know I have a just judge and I know he's not counting my transgressions against me. And if I really believed that, I'd go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 16. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. How many of you have known and believe the love that God has for you? Okay. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. How many of you believe God is love? So when people say to you, yeah, but God's also the judge, don't let them convince you that's two different things. God is judge. God is love. 
He can only judge through his love. Otherwise, he's neither judge nor love. He's either in charge or he quit serving him because you're serving an inferior God. And he's either love or he's not. And if he's not, quit calling him a good father and quit calling him a God of love. And he's judge and love, meaning he can only judge through love and he can only love because he's judge. Now, should you freak out? Verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. If your scripture says torment, I got a better word for you, closer to the Greek, punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Oh, good news. God is love. God is judge. You don't have to worry in the day of judgment because as he is, so are you in this world. You don't have anything to be afraid of. Because fear, the only fear you'd have is if you fear you're going to be punished. And how can you be punished when you're in the God of love? And that's good news. Jesus, the embodiment of the love of God, steps into your crisis at the cross. The intersection of your life and your death at Calvary and takes into him the human experience and comes out the grave on the other side. And as we said last week, then he ascends into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Well, that's not all. That's great. You're, you're seated with him. But he comes again as what? The judge of both the living and the dead. And how does he judge? Well, he's not counting sins against. He's, not, he's, already, he's already decided he's not going to be a bookkeeper God. And he's the same as his father. And he's already stepped into judgment. And all he is is love. And so when he comes to judge the living and the dead, he must judge them through love. Which means you will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now see... Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. I don't know what that looks like or how it will happen. I just know that based upon Jesus' own prayer, he's not going to take us anywhere. He's going to come and join us. Because in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, he said, Father, I do not pray that you take my disciples out of the world. I pray that you take them through it. Jesus hasn't changed his prayer. So he's not waiting to get you out of a hell hole. <laughs> he's stepping into the hell hole with you. And he's progressing his kingdom like yeast in bread. Jesus said the kingdom is like a woman that plants yeast into three measures of meal and it slowly takes over. Jesus planted the kingdom at the cross. Does Jesus win? Yes. Then quit saying the world's going to hell in a handbasket because what you're actually saying is that Jesus didn't win. Stop it. The world's not going to hell in a handbasket. The world's not going to hell at all. The world is in some hell. But the kingdom's already been planted. The roots of the resurrection are taking deep root. Christ the victor wins. And he doesn't have to come and fry the world like a crispy critter to do it. But he comes to judge the living and the dead and the love of his father. I don't know what that looks like. But I'm excited to know that that's how this happens. That's my hope. Now, 
If I don't make it to Jesus returning to judge the living and the dead, then I'll step into the dead and be judged with the living and the dead. You notice how with Christ, he comes to judge the living and the dead. Isn't that an odd phrase? Why doesn't it say Jesus is coming to judge the living? Because that's all that would matter, right? If Jesus comes, judge the living. We go, the dead's already got their judgment. But what the creed affirms is that he's coming to judge the living and the dead. Because what that's saying is, is that in God's economy, he's judging it as a finished work. He's judging you living or dead. His justice. That's why I think you can start stepping into that just, you can start stepping into the judgment seat of Christ now. You will step into the judgment seat of Christ then. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we shall give an account of the things that we have done in our body. He also, or that, that's in 2 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, we are all building on a foundation that is Jesus Christ. Some of us building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Some of us building with wood, hay, and stubble. He said, and someday we will all step into the fire, and the fire shall reveal our works, whether they are gold, silver, and precious stones, or whether they are wood, hay, and stubble. And those shall all be burned up that are wood, hay, and stubble, but he himself, his soul, shall be saved by the fire. Which says to me that Paul's revelation of how it goes down is every one of us meets Jesus. And we bring what we are to Jesus. And he puts it in the furnace of his father's consuming fire. And I don't know what that looks like in time and eternity, but I trust that God is love and I trust that God is judge and I trust that Jesus looks just like his daddy. And I trust that if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace and met the fourth man in the fire of the Son of God, then I'll meet the Son of God when I step into that furnace. Yes. And I have no idea what that looks like, and I have no idea how long that takes. That's a timing question. That's me trying to put a clock into eternity. It doesn't work that way. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm thankful. I'm thankful that it's Jesus I meet. Think, think about that. It's Jesus I get to meet. Amen. He of the nail-scarred hands that says, I've done this for you. Come here. And you know what? If I got to step into a furnace, if you go, you're going to hell. You know what? You might be right. I know I'm throwing you a curveball. Don't, don't take this as a, you know, the basis of your theology. But uh, maybe you're right. Maybe what hell is, maybe there is a step for all of us to step into the fire. Maybe we've been calling that hell as if it was some opposite of heaven. I, 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 again, I'm not trying to establish your theology, but the truth is, is that I truly believe he is a consuming fire. If that's what hell is, okay, send me there if he's standing in the middle of it. Yes. That's where I want to land on that. Send me there if Jesus is in the middle of it, because if Jesus is in the middle of it, he conquers all. All things exist in him and he is the love of his father. And I want to reach out and grab that hand of his. Burn off of me, Daddy. Burn off of me, Father. All the garbage I brought in here, and I know I got some. Burn it off of me. Take it out of me. My foundation stone is Christ. You know what? I think it's good news that he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And so I'll say this. Jesus' return is going to be glorious, not awful. I challenge your theology if you believe that in, when Jesus returns, a bunch of people have to die. Because... He takes a bunch of people out and all the innocents might be on the wrong plane because their pilot was a Christian. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that gets taught. Their pilot was a Christian and then they get on the wrong plane and the pilot gets taken out and so the plane crashes and a bunch of innocent kids die because, you know, 
It's the way it's got to be. God's going to take his church out. If the Jesus you have coming back doesn't look like the Jesus that left, question the Jesus you have coming back. He is the love of his Father. As we step into that love, let's step into one text. 1 Thessalonians 5. I want to end right here. I know. Been a little long this morning. I warned you that this is a tough one to do in one Sunday. I didn't cover all the bases. No way I could. Tried to cover a few. My hope is to get you thinking. My real hope is to get you hopeful. That you can say Jesus is coming again and I'm okay with that because God is my judge. And Jesus loves me. And I'm okay with that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says this. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with Him. Can I change the wording? I'm just going to change it to what it reflects better in Greek. He died for us so that whether we are alive or dead, the living and the dead, we may live with Him. Now watch this next verse. This is, this is a mandate. You ready? Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as indeed you're doing. So if your eschatology isn't encouraging people and building them up, get rid of it. God didn't destine us for wrath. But for obtaining salvation through Jesus, He died for us so that whether we're alive or dead, we obtain it in Christ. Encourage one another with these words. So you go, well, I don't know if I agree with all that. Okay, fine. You don't have to agree with any of it. Just stop discouraging people with your words. Okay? You don't have to agree with any of it. Just take serious that you should be encouraging people with your words, not freaking them out. And so, because most of us are just freaking people out over stuff we're guessing about anyway. We're timelining people to death and scaring them to death about stuff we haven't even lived out. So if you can't encourage them, don't discourage them. And you go, well, I don't know what to say then. Just say <laughs> what Jesus said. And say what it says about Jesus. And all of the things we don't understand, we can't land on. When I pray the, pre the creed, I pray the creed the line, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And I always know that may not mean what I always thought it meant. But I hold the orthodox position of the church that the only hope for both the living and the dead is Jesus. And so I pray that line of the creed. He shall, I don't know what he shall come again looks like. I've told you what I think it doesn't look like. I've told you what I think it looked like. I've told you what I'm hopeful it looks like. All I know is who I believe in, Jesus. So, come again. Amen. Father, thank you for this line that you will come again to judge the living and the dead. What I've tried to do, Father, is to shine the spotlight on the beautiful love of Jesus, the love of the Father expressed through Jesus. We've tried to take a little journey, and I pray we've been at least somewhat successful. And I pray that that success is not manifested in agreement, but that it's manifested and we encourage one another with the hope of a loving Jesus. 
wherever we can't encourage because we don't understand it, God, at least help us to stop discouraging people. At least help us to recognize that sometimes the things we've given and attributed to the enemy or to this world or that this must happen or that must happen, that sometimes, Father, all we're doing is showing how little we really believe that you are the just judge. Help us in that area. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.